like to ask you to turn in your Bibles, please, to James chapter 4. And while you're turning, I want to give greetings to my brothers and sisters and dear sheep of this congregation who are with us by way of the Internet. As we've already acknowledged in prayer, we're thankful that you can be with us today. You who are watching know how many others from the church are watching. Uh, You who are here will be encouraged, I guess, to know that there are 35 families watching on the Internet this morning. And we love you, brothers and sisters. We are praying for you and for those in your family who are not well. We miss you today. Um, Let's continue to pray for one another. We have many who are away as well on travels for fall break. So there are... 100 to 125 of our people away today. So let's be mindful of one another. In just a moment, we will be uh, reading from uh, this fourth chapter of James. I come to my final sermon in this series on the subject of humility. I want to ask, are there any here this morning who do not have one of these little um, inserts with, okay, our sister Joyce needs one, Dave. Anyone else? Just hold your hand up. Char Waldron needs one. Anyone else? I hope that you will. Here we have one for Dr. Mike. Thanks, brothers. Gary has some, if anyone else needs one. Okay. I hope you will take advantage of these. We're not trying to be fancy. We're trying to be practical and helpful in providing a place for some notes and giving you quotes and suggesting questions that ought to be answered and that I hope will be a springboard for discussion. And especially I'm hoping that those of you who are parents and have young children at home We'll be using the questions designed for them. I haven't heard from anyone about this. I don't assume that you're not, but I would love to hear if that's been helpful and if that's been something that enables you to follow up on these sermons with your children at a child's level. They can always hopefully answer the question, what did Pastor Ted preach about today? Now... Let me say this by way of introduction. If humility is so important, and my third sermon was entitled, Why Is It So Important? And at least I hope you remember that it's important because without humility it's impossible to be saved. No one will enter the kingdom of heaven who does not become like a little child, according to our Savior. It's important because God hates pride. And so I say to you this morning, if humility is so important, and if God does in fact look with delight and favor and love upon the humble, and if in fact humility does make us like our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and if our consciences affirm 
the appropriateness of humility, and surely they do if we are really Christians. And what I have in mind just now is is this. Would you not agree with me that when you are most humble and you feel yourself to be humbled in a strange way, it's a good feeling? Because you know in your heart of hearts that's where God wants you. And it actually feels good to feel bad, to feel badly about our unworthiness. It's a good, bad feeling. It's a bad, good feeling. You know what I'm talking about, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, then you probably are a stranger to grace. But if our own consciences affirm that humility is an appropriate emotion for us to have, then surely, surely, all of us will want more and more and more genuine, godly humility. And so, the natural question arises. How may I grow in this grace? I want to grow in this grace. I need to grow in this grace. If God looks with favor upon the humble, then I want Him to look with more favor upon me. I want more humility. How do I get it? Well, that's the question that I want to try to answer this morning, at least in part. It is a formidable challenge to do so. And I think I probably know this better than any of you right now, though that sounds like a proud statement, because of all of the reading and studying that I've been doing on this subject. I have with me in the pulpit a copy of just one tiny segment of Richard Baxter's Christian Directory. It happens to be entitled Part 5, Directions Against Pride and for Humility. Do you know how many directions he gave? 24. But under each direction is another 10, 20 things to consider under each direction. And all 24 of these directives are wonderful and helpful and worthy of thought. And I still think it would be a great idea for a group of Christians in this church to spontaneously get together and say, hey, let's go through Baxter together and let's just read one page every time we meet and talk about it. So Baxter gave 24 directions. And then I've been quite helped by our friend, Dr. Wayne Mack, um, his book on humility, one of the best things that I've read. And toward the end of his book, he has no less than 14 ways by which we may obtain more humility. And I'm going to try to treat this in one sermon. And I'm simply going to present you with seven ways. It's certainly a distillation. And again, much more could be said about it. But before I submit these seven ways that we can all grow in the grace of humility, I just want to make... An observation. It's a, it's a bit of a theological observation, but I think it's an important one. We have in the Word of God what theologians call an antinomy, and this is just for the big people who care about this kind of thing, and I'm not going to stay here long and bore anybody, but an antinomy is simply something that appears to be contradictory. It, it's something you don't see how these two things can possibly fit together. They're both taught in the Bible. How do you reconcile this with this? And some people in their pride have said, well, since I can't reconcile it, um, 
and I can't understand it, then I'm going to reject one of these things. Then I don't have to try to put the two together. The granddaddy antinomy of them all is divine sovereignty and human responsibility. But we need to remember what Spurgeon said when asked, how do you reconcile these two things? He said, I don't. You don't have to reconcile friends. The very word reconciliation implies that they're at odds with one another. (coughs) Excuse me. They're only at odds with one another in our fallen understandings. But the Bible clearly teaches that God is divinely sovereign and that we are desperately in need of Him initiating grace in our lives. He makes the first move. But once He makes that move, we become active. But at the same time, even prior to His making the first move, we are responsible. We are responsible for our sins. We are responsible for our unbelief. We are responsible for our impenitence. And when it comes to the subject of humility, I don't need to tell you, do I, that humility is first and foremost a gift from God. It is a grace. It is something God produces. We cannot make ourselves humble by ourselves any more than we can pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. That's an old expression that boys and girls, boots used to have straps on them so that you could pull them off of your feet better. But if you bent over and grabbed both of your bootstraps and pulled real hard, you can't pull yourself up into the air. That's impossible. God must grant us humility. And we saw in the second sermon that humility originates with God in our salvation experience. But once we have been saved, we are more than ever responsible to humble ourselves. And I want you to notice, since I turned you to James... Just please notice, let's start with verse 5. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us? The answer, of course, is no. The Scriptures don't say that without a purpose. But, verse 6, He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. And just one more thing you must do. You must do this. You humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. Well, Pastor Ted, what is it? Does God make us humble or are we supposed to humble ourselves? The answer is yes to both questions. God first humbles us in our salvation experience. But once we have become the recipients of that grace, which is planted in our very souls, 
we are responsible to humble ourselves. Now, I want to quickly add, we can't even do that without God's help. But we can and we must. And that's why the scriptures come to us and say, humble yourselves. And James didn't feel any theological embarrassment about not adding, oh, by the way, you can't do this without divine grace. It's sort of obvious in the context that grace is essential. But the emphasis of, of, of James is on human responsibility. And I have turned you already in this series to other texts that make that very clear as well. First Peter 5, 5 and 6. We are told that we are to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. We are to humble ourselves. And Paul said to the Christians at Colossae, clothe yourselves. You clothe yourselves with humility. So, what do we have? We have an antinomy. We have something that seems a little bit contradictory. It isn't contradictory. But the emphasis of this sermon clearly is on what we can and must do to experience growth and grace. Hence, the question for our sixth sermon is, how can I grow in this grace? We've answered a what, we've answered a where, we've answered a why, We've answered a who, last week we answered a when, and today we answer a how. How may I grow in this grace? And you will notice, mom and dad, that the children should be asked, if we are truly humble, what is one thing we can do, we can do, to help our humility grow? So I'm hoping that even the children understand what I'm about to embark upon. Didn't the Apostle Peter say at the end of his second letter, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ? Grow. Wait a minute. Is that an indicative or is it an imperative? Is it something he's just informing us about, or is he telling us something to do? He's telling us something to do. We are responsible to grow. He tells us, grow. You grow. Sometimes we say that to our kids or to one another. Why don't you grow up? Why don't you just grow up? God is telling us to grow in grace. And I want to submit to you that if we don't grow in the grace of humility, it will be our fault. And if you think that you can blame God for the lack of growth in grace, particularly the grace of humility, then you are truly a hyper-Calvinist. You just think it's God's business and it's not your business and it's His move and you're just kind of sitting back, arms folded, legs up on a table saying, well, when God gets good and ready, I guess He'll, he'll make me more humble. Well, if that's your attitude... God may get good and ready and make you more humble in a way you couldn't imagine. But he tells us to humble ourselves. And the encouraging thing, dear brothers and sisters, is that God gives us grace. That's why I read that verse in chapter 4. Verse 7 says, but he gives more grace. God is a grace giver. And I'd like to put it this way, humility, if you have humility right now, even in a small measure, but genuine humility that God produced in your heart and in your life through your conversion experience. Listen, this statement is true of you. Humility, your humility assures 
that the humble will certainly obtain more humility from the God who loves humility and promises to give grace to the humble. Does that sound complex? I'm going to read it again, then I'm just going to say it perhaps more simply. Humility assures the humble that they will certainly obtain more humility from the God who loves humility and promises the grace to give grace to the humble. If you have any humility, you can simply take that humility to God and say, God, I want more humility. And if you humbly ask for more humility, He will give you more humility. Because He gives grace to the humble. So if you are humble and you ask for more humility, God will give you more humility. But we can't just pray, though praying is a certain um, responsibility. Now, here come the seven. Number one, I'm going to try to move along quickly. Number one, how can I grow in this grace? My first answer is return repeatedly to its original source. That takes us back to sermon number two. Where does it originate? Well, it originates in our salvation experience. Where did we get the measure of humility that we presently possess? You say, I got it when God showed me my horrible sinfulness and showed me the beauty of Christ and told me that I needed to flee to Him and repent of my sins and trust Him. And so out of a sense of my sinfulness, I went to the Lord Jesus and I called upon Him and I trusted Him and I believed upon Him and I was saved. God was gracious to me. And if I said to you, well, are you saying you first saw your need of Christ before you came to Him? You say, yes. Who showed you your need of Christ? Well, the preacher. But who was behind the preacher? The Holy Spirit and the Word of God. So if we are humble at all, we got our humility when we got saved. And that's why the Apostle Paul says that the fruit of the Holy Spirit, wherever the Holy Spirit comes, he produces various fruits. One of them is meekness, which is very comparable, almost impossible to be distinguished from humility. And so we got our humility from God, from God the Holy Spirit in our salvation experience. And so I simply say to you, if you want to grow in this grace, if I want to grow in this grace, why don't we go back to the origin? Why don't we go back to God? Why don't we say, God, you who made me humble to begin with in my salvation experience, I beg of you, help me to be more humble. I want more humility. Holy Spirit, you have said through the Apostle Paul that humility is a fruit that you produce. Please, I beg of you, Holy Spirit, produce humility in greater measure in my life. And you know what that is? I'm going to throw out my second technical term today. That is healthy synergism. And when I say sinner, now I'm not talking about S-I-N-N-E-R. We're all sinners. I'm talking about S-Y-N-N-E-R. It's two things coming together. And there is a healthy synergism. If God is the author of humility, we have every right and responsibility to pray. Well, who's doing the praying? Is God praying for you to, to get humility? No, I'm praying. I pray to God, God gives. 
We pray, God gives. God gives, we pray. And these two come together. And so, how can I grow in this grace? By returning repeatedly to its original source, namely God Himself. And we return to to that source in prayer. Number two, how may I grow in this grace? Well, I must labor diligently for enlarged views of God's glory and my remaining sin. Two things. Did you hear that? I need to labor diligently for enlarged views of God's glory and my remaining sin. And I think this is more than just praying. Yes, prayer is a part of it. God, I want to see more of your glory. We prayed that this morning. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. I want to see you. Yes, we pray, but God shows us His glory in the Scriptures. And so, we must come to the Word of God with a desire to have an enlarged view of God and an enlarged view of our own remaining sinfulness. And I have shown you repeatedly now that when people saw the glory of God, what happened to them? Inevitably, invariably, everyone in the Word of God who came into contact with the glory of God fell down in one way or another. You can't see the glory of God without experiencing humility. Remember, Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, and he fell down, and he covered his mouth, and he said, Woe is me. For I am a man of unclean lips. That's just an illustration. Do you remember what happened to Job? This is the text. I'm not turning us to the text, but I don't want you to say, well, he made a point, but he didn't prove it with the Scripture. I'm already proving it. Whenever people saw the glory of God, they went down. If you read your Bible and study the glory of God and pray for enlarged views of His glory, you will go down. Not necessarily physically, but in your soul. And if you ask for enlarged views of your own sinfulness, and you see God shows both of those things, you have to see your condition before God. You have to see His glory. The two together make you go down. And when Job saw God, this is the second text in chapter 42, he says this, something very similar. I had heard of you with the hearing of the ear, but now mine eyes have seen you. That was when God asked all of those questions to Job, 175 questions designed to make him humble. And when Job came to the end of that, that terribly humiliating time of inquisition, he says, Oh God, oh God, I thought I knew who you were. I had heard of you with the hearing of the ear. But now my eyes have seen you. And listen, I abhor myself. And I repent in dust and ashes. If we could have been there that moment and just said, Hey, Joe, how do you feel right now? Proud or humble? He would say, overwhelmed with humility. Sense of my sinfulness sense of the glory of God. Would you like to feel that way? we got to spend more time in the Word searching for enlarged views of God's glory and our sinfulness. 
And when we have a sustained exposure to these things, be it through the public means of grace, which is taking place right now, sermons, Sunday school lessons, or through the private means of grace, reading and studying the scriptures at home and reading good books, for example, on the character of God. Arthur Pink, one of our brothers who's been visiting with us, Daryl Hensley, is loving Arthur Pink, and I'm sure that he's read the attributes of God. Many of us have read the attributes of God, just that particular book by Arthur Pink. There are many other good books. J.R. Packer's book called Knowing God. Amazing. You get into a book like that, which gets you into the Scriptures, and you will see enlarged views of the glory of God. And it will inevitably make you humble. And by the way, Packer also wrote a book called Knowing Man. And do you want to get exposed to the native sinfulness and even the remaining sinfulness of man? Read a good book like that. Listen to good sermons. Read Lungard's book called The Enemy Within. And he opens up the whole biblical teaching of remaining sin. And what it will do is it will humble you if you've got any grace at all. Now, if you don't have any grace, it won't humble you. And if you can read the book like that and it doesn't humble you, just conclude, I don't have any grace. But if you have grace and you see the glory of God and you see something of your own sinfulness, you go down. I'll go down. We have to go down. Number three, we need to remember daily, if not hourly, how much God hates pride and loves humility. What's the question? How may I grow in this grace? Oh, you want to grow in the grace of humility. Okay. Remember daily, if not hourly, how much God hates, hates pride. He hates it, dear brothers and sisters. He hates it. And he loves humility. And what perhaps would help us to remember daily, if not hourly, would be memorizing James 4, 6, or 1 Peter 5, 5, both of which I've quoted. And just remember this one little phrase, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And think about it on an hourly basis. Right now, I'm feeling proud. God opposes the proud. I must not allow myself to feel proud. But he gives grace to the humble. Memorize perhaps Proverbs 6.16. There are six things that the Lord hates. Seven that are an abomination to him. What's on the top of your list, Solomon? Haughty eyes. People who have a proud look. You can see it in their very countenance sometimes. How does God feel about it? Six things the Lord hates. Seven of them are an abomination to Him. And if we would think more frequently throughout the hours of the day, right now, into this situation, I'm telling a story. I'm telling a story. Why am I telling this story? Because I think, I think the people are going to say, Wow, wow, you had that experience? Wow. And you catch yourself. And you tell the story differently or you just say, You know what? It's not worth telling. Because in your mind, you are saying... God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Think frequently about how God punished the proud in Scripture. Think about Nebuchadnezzar. Think about Pharaoh. Think about King Herod. And think about how he rewarded 
the humble over and over. Number four, contemplate frequently the astounding humility, the astounding humiliation of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Did you hear this morning when Pastor Keith was praying about what our Savior, what the second person of the Trinity felt before, before He came to earth? And I will have you turn once again to that passage. So now, Philippians chapter 2, just see it once more. This is an amazing, this is a profound passage. Eternity itself will not unfold fully the wonder and the glory of what Paul records here. But in Philippians 2, he gives us a little insight. And remember, the purpose of this reference to the uh, incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ was to reinforce humility. He's writing to the church and he's saying, you need to quit doing things out of a rivalry and out of conceit, and you need to be humble. You need to, in humility, count others more significant to yourselves. Let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And he says, here's what will help you. Have this mind in you among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. I'm reading from verse 5. Philippians 2.5 Have this mind among yourselves there in the church in Owensboro at Heritage which is yours in Christ. You can have this mind. And then making mention of Christ he says who though he was in the form of God doesn't mean physical it means in terms of his attributes and his deity. When? When was he in the form of God from all eternity. It says, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. When did Jesus not count it a thing to be grasped? From all eternity. In terms of the covenant of redemption. All along, it was the posture of the Son according to the covenant of redemption. Father, You have chosen the people. I am willing, when the appropriate time comes, to let go of the outward manifestation of my glory and to go down to earth and take the form of a servant. I do not count it something that I must grasp onto. I will willingly let it go. Not my deity, but the manifestation of my deity. I will let it go. As we have worked out this covenant of redemption, And I submit to you again that though most of the humiliation that we think about with regard to the work of Christ is post-incarnation, that is after He took on flesh, there was a predisposition in the heart of the Son of God before He became a man to let go of that outward manifestation of deity. And then that humility reached its apex and its consummation in His incarnation and in all that he endured in life. And then he became obedient, and the apostle tells us even obedient to the death of the cross, where he became a curse for us. Now, why did I go into that? I thought you already preached a sermon. Wasn't that the sermon on who are some helpful examples? Yes, that was the sermon on who are some helpful examples. And I submit to you that the ultimate example of humility is the Lord Jesus Christ. But now I'm answering a different question. How can I grow in this grace? 
And I'm submitting to you that in addition to these other things that I've already said, what you and I need to do is contemplate frequently the astounding humility of the Lord Jesus Christ who did this and who had to do this in order to deliver us from our pride, in order to pay for our pride, He had to humble Himself. And when you think about the humiliation of the Lord Jesus Christ, it just breaks your heart, it overwhelms you. You cannot think about it and remain proud. You cannot. And Baxter puts it like this. And I know that I've actually read this, but I, I, it's so good that I'm just going to read you a couple of sentences again. He said, Direction number seven out of 24. Number seven, look to a humbled Christ to humble you. Can you be proud while you believe that your Savior was clothed with flesh and lived in, the, in poverty and made himself of no reputation and was despised and scorned and spit upon by sinners and shamefully used and nailed as a malefactor to a cross? The very incarnation of Christ is a condescension and humiliation enough to overwhelm both men and angels, transcending all belief, but such as God himself produces by his supernatural... T- no, you couldn't even believe this if God didn't, by his Holy Spirit, pr- produce faith in this. And can pride look at a crucified Christ in the face or stand before him? Can your pride look at a crucified Christ or stand before him? Did God take upon him the form of a servant and must you dominate and have the highest place? And on he goes. But you see, the direction is look to a humbled Christ. That's how you can grow in this grace. Number five, study carefully the lives of others, past and present who attractively exemplify humility. How may I grow in this grace? Study carefully the lives of others, past and present, who attractively exemplify humility. You can study the lives of those recorded in the Bible. You can study the lives of those recorded in the annals of church history. You can study the lives of those who are in your circle of friends. But study them, look at them, admire it. Say, I want to be like that. When Joseph came before Pharaoh, when Pharaoh desperately needed the interpretation of the dream, Pharaoh paid him high tribute. You know what Joseph said? Here's what he said. I'm not going to have you turn there, but just listen to this. This is humility. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream. I've heard it said that you... When you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Wow, what an opportunity. Yeah, that's, that's who I am. I'm, I'm good at that stuff. I'm glad you called me. Got the right man now. No. This is how Joseph responds. It's not in me. It's not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. I was a humble man. And I can't help but think of how Daniel humbled himself. And we won't turn there either. But I want you just to listen again to what he said to the king. And it was a desperate hour. 
All of the men who were supposed to be able to interpret dreams but couldn't do it were to be killed, including Daniel and his three friends. And Daniel comes to his friends and said, guys, we've got to pray. We've got to pray quickly and earnestly. And he says, seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. And then the next verse says, then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision in the night. You know what Daniel did? He immediately returned thanks. And it's a beautiful prayer. He says, basically, God, you are so gracious. Thank you for giving me the interpretation. And then he comes before the king and he says, oh, king, don't don't kill all these people. It's not necessary. No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Later he says, but as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me. Not because of any wisdom that... I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be known to the king. Man, Daniel was very humble. He didn't exploit the situation. He didn't say, uh, happy to be at your service. I think I can probably do the job. Give him the interpretation. No, he says, it's not about me. It's about you. And he humbled himself, and God exalted him according to the promise. So, dear people, how can we grow in this grace? Study carefully the lives of others. Figure out the people in your life that you think are the most humble people, and look at them, and observe them, notice how they behave, and seek by God's grace to emulate them. Number six, request genuinely the observation and input of faithful loved ones. How can I grow in the grace of humility? Go to your Friends that you respect and that you know love you and that you believe will be honest with you and say to them, I'm trying to kill pride. I'm trying to kill pride. I want to grow humility. Would you help me? And your friend will probably say, I'll try. That's an awkward position to be in. No, I want your help. Promise you won't get mad at me if I tell you the truth about you. I promise by God's grace I won't get mad at you. I need your help. I want you to tell me the truth. Your best friend tells you the most truth about yourself. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Proverbs 27.5 We need to go to our friends, our loved ones, perhaps our spouses and say... Will you be honest with me? That's a fearful question to ask your wife or your husband. But the writer to the Hebrews says, we need to exhort one another. And all the more as we see the day approaching. We need help from one another. Paul Tripp, the brother of our friend Ted, who is really a a very, very well-known author now and read widely. C.J. Mahaney tells us about something Paul Tripp said in C.J.'s little book on humility. He said, in his book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands, Paul David Tripp observes, quote, My self-perception is as accurate as a carnival mirror. 
Have you ever stood in front of it? It's kind of fun, isn't it? Some will make you look real short and real wide, and others make you look long and skinny. But no carnival mirror makes you look like you really look. He then adds, If I'm going to see myself clearly, I need you to hold the mirror of God's Word in front of me. He notes that Hebrews 3, 12-13 clearly teaches that personal insight is the product of community. Now, boy, don't let that, don't let that just fall through the cracks of, of your mind. Listen. Hebrews 3, 12 and 13 clearly teach that personal insight is the product of community. Do you know what community means? It means you're not doing it on your own. You're not going to come to good insight all by yourself. You need help. And explains why we cannot obtain this full insight on our own. Since each of us still has sin remaining in us, we will have pockets of spiritual blindness. Do you have any pockets of spiritual blindness? Big ones. The Bible says that we can be spiritually blind and yet think that we can see quite well. Even Christians. That's why my friends, and now CJ's talking about an experience he had where his friends really helped him. And then he quotes Tripp once more. Tripp says, We even get offended when people act as if they see us better than we see ourselves. (laughs) Do you get offended when people think they can see you better than you see yourself? How do you feel when people say, "I, I see something in you that you don't see? Well, who do you think you are? You got omniscience. You got a judgmental spirit. That's why you see something. And what we have to say is, really, will you help me see it? Help me see it. That's humility. I wish I could go on to read more from this about that. It's so good. Read CJ's book on humility and read Paul Tripp's book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands. Anybody who wants to be a counselor, a Christian counselor, must read Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands. The whole thesis of the book is that God has called us, the people of God, to sharpen and help one another. Not officials, not the elite only. So I suggest, dear ones, that we enlist our friends and we go to them and say, no, here's what I want you to ask me. I'm going to give you the questions. I want you to ask me these questions. Do I come off arrogant? Do I get defensive when... People point out things about me. There, there's some questions in this book. But you know what questions you need your friends to ask. And so do I. And finally, I submit that if you want to grow in this grace, you need to anticipate regularly the day of judgment. And calculate, try to compute, try to estimate the number of things you think you will be proud of on that day. There you are, standing in the presence of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords at what the book of Revelation calls the great white throne judgment. 
You're on the right side of the king. As a shepherd puts sheep on his right and goats on the left. And I ask you this question. If you had to make a list right now of the things that you think you'll be proud of on that day, how many things are going to be on your list? Short list, long list, in between list, how many things? You know the answer to that. Zero. Zero. As we have pointed out many times, the only thing we can take credit for is our sin. That's all. I have nothing. And the passages of Scripture that I would have turned you to, but please take note of them. <clears throat> I'm trying to be gracious in the interest of time. Romans 14.10, 2 Corinthians 5.10. You know what those passages teach? They teach something that I do not fully understand. And, I, and Pastor Sam doesn't either. And we may ask some of the rest of you. I don't fully understand it. We're going to give an account of ourselves in the day of judgment. What's that account going to be like? I don't know. Because we're, we're acquitted. We're going to be acquitted. We're going to be on His right hand. Our sins have all been forgiven. They've all been paid for. That's right. But whatever all of that being paid for means, we're still going to give an account. And I don't know if it just means that God's going to say one last time, do you have anything to say for yourself outside of Christ? How do you account for all of your sinfulness? One more time. This is just my imagination. I'm not saying I'm sure that's what it means. Just one more time, I want you to feel the most overwhelming sense of humility that you have ever felt yet before I say, enter into the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Well done, Thou faithful and good servant, just before I say that and you enter into this glorious, blissful condition, one question, how do you account for your sins? I don't know. But I promise you, dear souls, not a single one of us will have one item on our list in answer to the question, what are you proud about today? Nothing. So when you're proud this afternoon, you're starting to feel pride, just say, wait a minute, I'm going to go to the day of judgment for just a minute. There I am, standing before the King of Kings. I have nothing to be proud of. So we need to anticipate we need to anticipate that day. Well, dear ones, this series has come to an end. But our efforts to become more and more humble must never come to an end. Someone said to one of the deacons who told me, and I'm not going to tell you who the someone is, but I agree with the someone. He said, we're coming to the end of the series, but it's too soon to come to an end of series on humility. Because none of us are where we need to be yet, especially the guy talking to you. So, but we can't preach on humility every sermon for the next 10 years. We will come back to the subject of humility because humility is something we must constantly think about it.
I want to ask you this, though. Are you more humble now than you were six sermons ago? Are you? Maybe you have to say, I don't know that I'm more humble, but I can honestly say I want to be more humble. I hope you can at least say that. What tangible steps have you taken to deal with pride in your life? What tangible steps? Tell me something. Write down something. This is what I have done. This is a decision I have made. This is a measure I have taken. If you can't say anything, dear ones, then you should be overwhelmed with humility right now, the humility of shame. And you just need to say, I'm so proud that I haven't even felt the need to take any tangible steps. God have mercy on us. What accountability relationships have you established? What kinds of Christ-likeness are you now pressing after since the series began? What about us as a church? Are we a more humble church than we were seven or eight weeks ago? I think there was a break or two in this series. We better be. Shame, shame on this church if we're not more humble. You know it's the desire of your pastors, as we believe it is your desire, for this church to be more humble. We believe things that a lot of churches in our community don't believe. And we expect people to visit us and go away scratching their head. But the one thing we want them to be fully persuaded of is that those people love one another. Those people love their God. Those people love to worship. And they're humble. They're really, really humble. They're always trying to serve each other. They don't all have to have the same view on music. They're able to say, you know what? I don't like that song, but I'm excited that my friends are excited. We can disagree with our brethren in our own circles of fellowship and outside of our circles of fellowship. We can learn from the charismatics, not me. They're in error. They believe the gifts are still with the church. I can't learn from people like that. Really, I'd like to worship with some of the passion. And it's not all emotionalism. That's what we want to believe. Because we're afraid of emotions, even though emotions are the thing God is interested in. What is love? He wants truth to so permeate our souls that we're caught up with love and joy and feelings toward God. God is interested in emotions. Not emotional-ism, emotions. I can't learn from charismatics. can't learn from Presbyterians. They believe in paedo-baptism. can't learn from Arminians. They don't have it straight on free will. can't learn from Southern Baptists. can't learn from other Reformed Baptists. I really find myself most able to learn from me. Where's the humility? Where's the humility? Where's the humility? We want Heritage Baptist Church 
to hold firmly to what they believe the Word of God teaches and is expressed in our confession of faith. But we want the people to be gracious and willing to learn from others with whom we disagree. Because guess what? We don't have it all together. Heritage Baptist Church doesn't have it all together. None of your pastors have it all together. And no one on this earth who's redeemed will ever have it all together until we know as we are known. And in the meantime, better be humble, better be humble, better be humble. That's my call to this congregation. And I think that's the call of the Holy Spirit to your conscience. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we, we are overwhelmed with... How desperately we need to be more humble. And we are overwhelmed sometimes to see how much pride still resides in our souls. We confess to you that it's a horrible, heinous form of sin that remains within us. And we can only ask that by your grace you root it out. Root it out. Show it to us until we can see it and repent of it, cut it off and deal with it. Lord, we are encouraged to know that you give grace to the humble and you've made us humble in a way that we once weren't humble before we're Christians. And so we pray that you will graciously make us more humble individually and corporately. And especially we pray that you would be gracious to those who have never even initially been made humble that are still walking around strutting around in their pride like they don't need God. Have mercy on their souls. May Heritage Baptist Church be known in this community and in the larger community, even of our sister churches, as a humble church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.